So here we are back for another episode of Establishing Shot. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> it like it sound establishing coming after it. <laughs> Boom! Establishing Shot. Here we are. So, uh, hi, I'm uh, Ted Barron. I am a Ted Barron. I am the Ted Barron of the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. I'm the executive director here, joined, as always, by Ricky Herbst. Hi, Ted. You're really pushing yourself over the other Ted Barons of the world. (laughs) There is another Ted Barron, you know. Of course. There's there's one that I get who, when um, he's a photographer and he shoots, like, rock bands. Oh, um, it's kind of a cool. That's a good that's a cool Yeah, exactly. It's a, that's a cool one to get mixed up with. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, I was watching American Gladiators, mm-hmm. and there was a competitor from St. Louis, Missouri, named Rick Herbst. It blew my mind. <laughs> I watched it at 10 a.m. on a Sunday before 11:30 mass. Mm-hmm. I was on a high, like throughout. Mass. <laughs> Even lost. He lost like badly yeah. in the eliminator. I don't think he finished. He like quit halfway. <laughs> A friend of mine, a friend of mine, met the other Ted Barron, I guess, in in uh, New York, and yeah. she and she and she told me about how he gets mixed up. He sometimes gets confused, or like people confuse him with me uh-huh. somehow. Just I don't know where our worlds are intersecting, but there's enough of a Venn diagram there that we have some crossover. So that, um, ma- that made me feel special. That's good. The other thing, not is alone. I have. We're a, not there, alone. There's a like Richard W. Herbst who is like runs Goldman Sachs Ooh. and no one confuses us. That doesn't happen. People obviously like, oh, that's not your blood. That's like, right. Okay. All right. Um, are you going to tell us about, uh, so as we know, the are the Richard <laughs> Richard W. Herbst, is it a W? Yeah, W. Okay, Richard W. Herbst. Is Richard our, William Pius Herbst. Oh, boy. Um, cinema program director. Um, Richard uh, Ricky, as we call him, is going to tell us about uh, what's happening in December, right? Right. Well, we have a truncated schedule because uh, we're out for the holidays. The semester will be ending in two weeks. But we do have some screenings left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's nice because we're able to show both holiday fair at the end of the semester as well as um, some, I don't know about more challenging, but just different films that may not have as protracted an audience. Yep. Uh, so we have... Two interesting offset films. Uh, one is My Friend Dahmer, an adaptation of the much heralded graphic novel uh, by Durf Backdurf, uh, who uh, grew up with uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. They were high school classmates. And the author went on to become a very well-known cartoonist and wrote a graphic novel about his experiences with Jeffrey Dahmer when he was an unusual uh, kind of outcast uh, who had a lot of obviously troubles uh, in high school, but had yet to become uh, the serial killer by whom we all know uh, him. And so uh, this is a really, it's actually a very touching film. It seems like an odd description. You saw this in Tribeca? Was yeah, this, yeah, it was really the only good takeaway there. Yeah. Um, and it's and yeah, very and, different from Dahmer, the film Dahmer. Well, that's, in, and that's what I was surprised when you described it to me that it doesn't kind of play up the more, I mean, there's so much sensational, there's so many sensational aspects to his character mm-hmm. that it just tries to, I mean, humanize him without, it's, it sounds like humanize him without trying to do so in a way that, you know, where, where you, you humanize these kind of very difficult people Mm -hmm. um extremely difficult in terms Mm of uh you know what his life was but in a way that doesn't try to over romanticize him so it it, it clicked um i'm curious to see it again yeah just because it was offset festival where i wasn't really feeling many of the films so maybe it's not as strong as i remember well it is yeah and that can that's that's always interesting about the festival experiences where your you know your gauge gets thrown off by 
Um, it's usually you usually settle for less, sadly, with, <laughs> with a lot of festivals. I, that's that's unfair, but um, but you know you you start to you know you want something to be to be good and successful. So um, and festivals are a place to see you know a lot of things that maybe are works in progress or just you know aren't really finished as as concepts. So. Um, so that can push some some other films to the top. But anyway, that's coming up. Uh... So that's uh, here at the end of November, the beginning of December. Okay. Um, and then alongside that, we have an animated film uh, called The Breadwinner, uh, which is uh, it's about a young girl in Afghanistan in the early 2000s uh, who has to go out in the community and earn uh, – money for her family. She has to be the breadwinner, as it were, and uh, has to, in order to do that, assume the role of being a boy in order to take on that responsibility. Um, And this is from the same people who made Song of the Sea and The Secret of Kells. Right, both of which played here. Yeah, Yeah. those were really popular here. Um, But those are, I mean, Secret of Kells was a a little spooky for younger kids. Um, Song of the Sea was just a beautiful, um, had a beautiful family story um, set amongst the world of Selkies, um, these (laughs) these sea creatures. Um, But also, but I I think those those skewed definitely younger than this one because this seems to be more tied into kind of contemporary. It's it's in Afghanistan, you said? Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Mm -hmm. Modern Afghanistan. Yeah. Although there are fantastical elements to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, it is geared toward an older audience, but I think that more mature. They have a nice Young people could definitely enjoy it. The Cartoon Saloon has a nice hand drawn style that's you know it's 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 like kind of your better picture books has that kind of kind of look to it, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the things that's really endearing about their approach. So I'm eager to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then our uh, our Sunday uh, family film uh, is uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. uh, which has. All the Muppets. <laughs> this is going to go down the list of the is this Muppets. Pre, is this pre or post Jim Henson's death? This is after. After. Sorry, Jim Henson. I I am, or almost simultaneous. I, I think it's right after. It's right I think after. it's right after. Yeah. Um. So I don't. I I don't happen to know if he worked on it. I assume. Yeah. But you don't have his um, voice. That's the. Bi- I mean, that was the big shift of the post Jim Henson is Kermit without his voice. Right. Which is a little, you know, it's. I mean, it's. It, they got it close, but they. It's. It's still. It's not quite the same. Well, now we're gonna have another break, right? With the new. With the newer ones. With the new Kermit. So. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, that so fortunately for me, that was that happens at a point where you don't have discerning. Mm-hmm. T- like. Um, I don't know. I I was I'm never an audiophile, but I couldn't tell the difference between. The well, Kermit if you grew and... up, I mean, like, I mean, I'm old enough to have grown up watching Kermit on Sesame Street. You know, going back to right. those early, and as, as well as the Muppet Show and the Muppet Movie, and and that first the the first trilogy. As we're going to talk about trilogy, we're going to talk about movies mm. in groups of three. Um, uh, yeah, that, that that there's an attachment to that 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 made it hard. That's always made it harder for me to accept kind of the later iterations of uh, the Muppet stories. Um, and then uh, we switch. Uh, <laughs> we go to a different uh, theme that Sunday, and we'll be showing Fukushima Monomore, which is Doris Dory's new film mm-hmm. about. Um, I actually I haven't seen it yet, but mm-hmm. uh, we're doing this in conjunction with the Goethe Institute. Oh, great! Uh, out of Chicago, wonderful working with them, 
as well as the uh, Russian and German department here at the University of Notre Dame. Also wonderful to work with them. But it seems to be um, uh, like a, a soul-searching movie uh, where a young German has a bad breakup and goes to Fukushima to work on uh, aid and volunteerism and coming up empty but also being interested in the world. So I'm excited to see it for the first time uh, here at the the Browning. Yeah, we wanted to include, when we did a series on German film, kind of the post-war German film, we really wanted to include a Doris Story film. Um, her stuff, her earlier stuff tends to be lighter. Um, this sound, this doesn't sound particularly light, but um, this, uh, but you know, partly because she's one of the few women who were represented in post-war uh, German film, other than Margaret von Trotta, or kind mm-hmm. of you know, kind of Margaret von Trotta maybe a little bit older, um, but just you know, similar generation. Um, so I'm curious to see w- where she is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we finished the the year uh, with Ex Libris, mm. which. Talking about pronunciations and not knowing exactly what the Latin is on it. Right. I, I do you think it's your law Libris. background doesn't doesn't get you that one? Uh, for books, no. No. Okay. Not, <laughs> I think Libris. it's Libris. I think it, I would say Libris. I do too. Because um, I don't know that they actually say it in the film. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think. That. <laughs> I wouldn't think that would necessarily yeah. be. It's a long enough film where you think they might at one point, but right. no. <laughs> There's not a big opening number. Where no, <laughs> it's ex Libris. <laughs> The, uh, but this is a, a three-hour and change yeah. documentary by Frederick Wiseman. Yes, your old buddy. My, yep, I love him. And law, law school, law school. Law, yeah, that's law right. School. Another law school documentarian. Yep, <laughs> they're a dime a dozen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is his. Uh, I actually didn't count the number of films. I've he's stopped made, counting. It's too many. It's just a lot. <laughs> I, I think it's at the point where you can say dozens. Well, you could say, I mean, the way I always 24. do it, well, you say like his, his, I would, I don't know if he's hit 50, but his, if you go back to, um, Titicut Follies is 67 mm-hmm. and he was on a track to do about one film a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been fairly consistent. So, um, if you go one film a year, that gets you 50, 50 years, 50 films. Mm-hmm. I'd say he's probably, it's probably high forties. Um, so can, are you including the shorts too then or um he doesn't really have a lot of shorts i mean yeah. <laughs> in fact he has the opposite of shorts i guess he does he does some tv stuff i was i was er, yeah. cuz he's someone that i looked at for what oh, for our, our list for our secret list that's coming up mm-hmm. we're just teasing you <laughs> we just want to tease Beating tease breath. tease but anyway yeah so i'd say it's he's he's either he's easily made over 40 films yeah and we could and and we could just resolve this by getting on IMDb. And, and I, I would say that you know certainly over a dozen are well known yeah. pictures that have really cracked into yeah just outside the film world into the real world. Well, he's on a really good streak now of films that are you know his his institutional studies where he's found really in, interesting institutions that I think they're not just it's not just that they're interesting because I think all of his films. Pretty much all of his films, the subjects are really fascinating. But um, he's found institutions that I think have a broader reach, maybe than some of his other, since than some of his earlier work. So as opposed to doing like Law and Order, which is about the Kansas City Police mm-hmm. in the '60s, one of his best films. Um, now he's doing institutions like you know Berkeley or um, the National Gallery, uh, and in this case, it's the New York Public Library, which is the subject. And I think it's better when he has a target 
like you said, a physical institution as opposed right. to domestic violence. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which, 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 although that is shaped that through a system, yeah. he finds a system to explore to to cover that subject. But, but certainly in terms of, I think I think it's helped his films to reach more people. I've heard when because we've shown his most recent work. You know, we typically do like a matinee screening. This one we're doing a couple. We're going to do three screenings. Yeah, and yeah. it's and it's totally. I've seen it. It's totally worth it. Um, don't let the running time discourage you. It moves really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's or I think, come and leave. Like, well, that's yeah. You, you can want, yeah. His films do yeah. You can you can kind of he doesn't he do, he intentionally does not um, allow um, intermissions within his films. But you can kind of you know you can kind of take make one. Your own. you can make exactly yeah when you get kind of bored with something. But but what's great about this is that it it um, so what I was starting to say is that the the more recent films um, a lot of people are kind of just discovering him kind of late in their own kind of film knowledge and or, or their own kind of film discovery and. Uh, process of film discovery and and they're really fascinated with him because his approach I think is super accessible I mean I think that because he does you know his his one of his greatest strengths is as an editor he keeps things moving along really well mm-hmm. um, and uh, and in this case what's great is that you know you would it seems like he comes into it with the idea that he's going to explore the main branch of the New York Public Library but he actually it becomes much more interesting when he gets out into the the um, the the other boroughs. Um, I forget which. I think it's everything but uh, Brooklyn and Queens are the only two boroughs that are not represented within the film. So, but his uh, his <clears throat> excuse me his films I also see almost similar to the small snippets going back to Sesame Street. Yeah, where like this is how they make saxophones and right. this is how they make crayons. Right. Uh, seeing the process in a way that allows you to be almost a tour guide to a factory. Right. But what's, but what he does it, it, is, but, oh, sorry, no, go, on, no, sorry. go ahead. No, what I was going to say is, but, but, he, but instead of jumping, you know, when he went like in the Sesame street format, you're jumping from one subject to something maybe totally unrelated. Mm-hmm. He actually tries to link these things together. So he has kind of transitions, even though he might shift to a different focus, mm-hmm. there's some connection between, you know, scene a and scene b in terms of how they follow from one another so it's really and and that's kind of a cool thing to piece together as you're going through his work like here's here we're going to look at you know different modes of you know how the library functions as an educator in the community you know and you'll see a a series of different communities and different approaches where um where education becomes kind of the more more of the focus of it here's the here's the here's a section on just you know how books get sorted which Mm -hmm. you know maybe sounds uh, not like the most exciting thing, but it's it's really cool to watch. Yeah, it sounds super exciting. Yeah, yeah. So, and we're going to encourage a lot of librarians to come to this, aren't we? Yes, come on <laughs> out. See how your uh, see how your colleagues on the East Coast do it. That's right. That's right. So, <laughs> and then just to wrap up the semester, we will be showing Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, uh, the original, right? Not the the. Not the. Is there a colorized version of this? Uh, I don't even. There probably is. I, I'm sure there was a Technicolor <laughs> version, but the not the the remake from from the, the 90s. 90s. Oh right. Okay, yeah. with so, starring Mara Wilson, who has been vocal in her uh, in her defense of the the young woman from Stranger Things, that people should stop trying to make her seem like an adult when she's still a child. But that's a whole other. You can get into a whole Twitter thing on that if you want to. Huh. Yeah, Mara Wilson's still kicking around. Well, I'm in. I didn't know that there was a. I I, I didn't know that there was a debate that or 
And I, I just suppose of all the child stars, it's interesting that she's picking the Stranger Things one. Well, because I think it's also because that character is is portrayed as more mature than than most child characters in in stories, right? That she's that there's a there's a wisdom to her that suggests that she's mm-hmm. older. So anyway, um, also well, it's also red both. carpet. It's like red she's carpet also stuff. like fresh out the packaging like she that's true know what egos are that's true i mean how old can you how mature <laughs> can you really be <laughs> so is that so uh, miracle on 34th street that's our that wraps it up that's our that's our that wraps it up for us so then mm-hmm. and then we'll get back into things we'll take a little break and we'll be back uh, mid-january right mm-hmm. okay and listen to the january podcast for all the fun things that you can see that's right. in the 2008 semester awesome so um 2008 2018 spring semester <laughs> We're thinking back. Two thousand wow, it's ten years since two thousand eight. That's 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 some time passing. Okay, so we are uh to to kind of continue with our podcast today, um, we're going to uh keep going with our um with our top three uh lists because we've been uh trying to institute this as kind of a regular uh segment. Um but I think it's what has people tuning in. I do, I do. I think <laughs> they, they want to know they want to know that top three. <laughs> And they want to know why it's three and not five and not ten. Yeah, but um, three because three is a really unlucky number for me. Is That's it really? Oh no, I didn't um, know that. We, we, in we my OCD it. math system okay. as a kid, three was like the world's going to blow up. I never so. had a big thing about threes, but um, so I was so I so we were discussing what we could talk about for our top three, and I was inspired by a tweet that. Um, uh, because I spend more time on Twitter than I should, uh, from a, uh, a film reviewer who's, I believe his name is Joe Simpson, which may also be the name of Jessica Simpson's father, but as I was trying to find out more information about Name doppelganger that's today, right, exactly. today on the podcast. <laughs> it's also, the, it's the guy from the movie Touching the Void, which I never saw. So, um, But he has, a, he has a Twitter feed called Always Be Closing, um, and he just tweeted, he, he tweeted out, uh, just, you know, people randomly ask questions on Twitter, and his question was, name your top three, or name the, the director with the best three-film streak, three, three consecutive film streak in history, and then it led to this kind of interesting kind of back and forth where people put out their ideas. Mm-hmm. So I thought we should do that because, hey, there's the number three coming up. But, of course, it's not enough just to do, you know, the director with the best three. We have to kind of push our concept further. So we're going to cube it, and we're going we're gonna to do our three top three. Nine films for the price of three. There you go. That's <laughs> what you're getting today. Um, so so um, who wants to go first? Well, I just, at, at the outset, a couple of notes on things like this. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's interesting how, for me, this is a very, like, within, whenever you have questions of, like, canons or... I would just say, like, bodies of work. It always runs really dudish and masculine, these questions. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I looked over the t- Twitter feed a little bit, and mm-hmm. I wasn't surprised to see the names that people come up. Right. Um, a lot of Spielberg, a lot of really A lot Scott. of Wes Anderson. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul Thomas the, Anderson. Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. And it, I mean nothing against these people, but it's just it's it was interesting how it really glommed into yeah to that world, um, and how um, difficult it is because a lot of the directors I like um, doing the old flower arrangement model of 
uh, like spiller, thriller, filler, <laughs> where you have, you know, something that goes out in the world mm-hmm. and gets you noticed. Then you make something really big that people notice, mm-hmm. and then you make a filler <laughs> right. to just occupy space and get some paychecks, I imagine. Well, the filler, so the filler throws off the, 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 the street. The trifecta. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 what I found is, you know, when I went to my, um, uh, white male canon, uh, because I, you know, I'll, you know, freely acknowledge that I think most of the directors that I've kind of grown up with as, you know, kind of key influences are mostly, um, you know, this, this, this group. Um, you, what I found is that, you know, a lot of my favorite directors, they would have, um, two really strong films together and then they do something kind of offbeat where they would do like a TV movie or a documentary or a short that would kind of just kind of throw off their their streak. Mm-hmm. And and the question was whether we should disqualify those directors because their third film was something else or but in but in many of those cases actually the third film if we if we just stuck with the third feature that would follow something was different about those third films because those directors had been pushing in other directions. So mm-hmm. um, so this was, you know, when I initially, so I actually responded to the, to the tweet with one of the uh, th- sets of three that I'll, that I'll discuss in a moment. Um, that was actually pretty easy to come up, come up with, but to try to think of more of them actually took a lot more time than I thought in terms of finding, um, you know, finding a solid set. And it actually pushed me into maybe a group of filmmakers who I wouldn't necessarily say these are the greatest filmmakers of all time, but there's just, but you have some directors who just have a level of consistency within their work that, that gives them something to, something to acknowledge. So, mm-hmm. so that's what, I guess that's what we'll try to sort through today. So, uh, any also rands of note or any, well, that you bumped into that, you know, I was trying to, when I was, when I was doing this, I was trying to, Use it, you know. I always want to use these kinds of discussions as an opportunity to bring people's attention to maybe filmmakers they haven't heard of. So uh, I'm going to leave uh, Martin Scorsese off the list, even though I could make a case that the streak from Raging Bull, The King of Comedy, to After Hours is is one of his uh, kind of best moments. Um, Billy Wilder, similar, similarly, um, when he did Sunset Boulevard. Um, you know, he has that kind of bookended by A Foreign Affair and Ace in the Hole, which are two of his two of his kind of rougher films that actually maybe a lot of people don't know about. Um, so now they do. Now they do. <laughs> I know. So we're, so I'm already like making. We're already going past the nine, but by doing this, but it's um, you know, it was it it's it, I, what I guess what we're going to try to do with this is just to try to you know demonstrate that there are some really great filmmakers who you know maybe you're not aware of how much that they had produced over their careers. So mm-hmm. we'll see what it is. So why don't you go first? What do you, what do you have? Can you give me a, give me a, give me a threesome. Okay. Well, my approach was I did want to have um, like a good American auteur in there, you know, someone who's working out of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And then I gave myself one like fancy pants director mm-hmm. and then one more personal, like, oh, I like these movies a bunch. Yeah. Not that I hate the other ones, but <laughs> you know, ones that maybe aren't um, as lauded as regularly. But guilty, uh, no, you don't want to go so far as to say guilty pleasure, but you want to. No, because I think they're pleasurable for everyone. Yeah. Um, Good. And unless everyone's guilty, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the. So uh, from the American side of things, uh, I went with Paul Schrader, mm-hmm. who actually has a run of four that 
because the two on the ends are the ones that I really like, but mm-hmm. the two in the middle are strong as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 1979, he makes Hardcore, uh, which is a film that always interested me um, as I was born into uh, a Dutch enclave in Iowa and into that Christian reform world. And as Catholics, we were outsiders mm-hmm. and uh, let known that that was the case <laughs> pretty forcefully. Uh, so I, I suppose there was some talking about guilty pleasure and just seeing that world um, unravel right? In, in some ways as George C. Scott goes to Hollywood uh, searching for his daughter who's absconded and gone into kind of darker world than what it was in, I think it's in Grand Rapids. Um, that's they, Well, that's because Schrader's from Michigan. Yep, he's yeah. from that. And he just made another film on point. Oh, right. About uh, the reform we, set. Yep. Um, so he makes that, and then he makes American Gigolo mm-hmm. and his remake of Cat People. Mm-hmm. Uh, we screened the original Cat People this semester. We did as part of our RKO series. Uh, which I really liked as a kid. That was one of those VHS uh, titles that was available in the video store growing up where you didn't know if it was okay. <laughs> like yeah. It oh, so it's that, oh, well, we were just watching in the RKO class, we just watched the trailer for it uh-huh. and it totally plays up the, the more lurid aspects of it. But you know, yeah, it's called Cat People. Right. Which is pretty, <laughs> I mean, that's somewhat discombobulating when you're a kid. Yeah. Uh, he makes that in 82. Um, and I went and watched that about a decade ago and I was like, oh yeah, I really... I'm into what he was doing. And then he makes, I'm going to potentially mispronounce this, uh, Mishima or Mishima, uh, A Life in Four Chapters in 1985, Mm -hmm. uh, which is an amazing film. Um, And one that I've always been surprised didn't get enough, uh, or I didn't get more interest or I think it I mean it had kind of a cult thing in the 80s because I can remember it from you know like video store days it was it was definitely like one of the prestige films mm-hmm. that you know uh, people would make a point to see but it would but it never was like a film that people spoke about yeah. you know with the same level of kind of passion I guess maybe then as or I don't know if it would compare to some of it didn't direct I mean that's true that's true because you have taxi driver have like hit that level when they very easily could. I think. right, right, yeah. He tends to get overshadowed in that in that sense. Um, yeah, because I mean, you think about he wrote the screenplay for Taxi Driver, which is you know probably the thing that he's best known for, and um, as opposed to any that that's gotten uh, you know clearly more attention over the years than any any of the films he directed. So mm-hmm. um, great. So that's my run of four okay. for him, which is uh, cheating a little bit. Okay. Um. Well, I'm going to jump in with with the the three that I w- were my immediate response to the uh, to the question, which was, and I went very safe on this, at least safe in terms of, uh, you know, who we who we kind of see as the the masters of of American cinema, certainly American independent cinema. So I went for I went for the granddaddy, John Cassavetes, um, and looking at his streak that he made from uh, 1968 through I think 71. Uh, and that's Faces, Husbands, and Minion Moskowitz. Um, Faces, we're going to try to include. We have a series coming up next semester on 1968, right? Mm-hmm. And that's uh, we're hoping to screen that as part of the series. That'll be a public series uh, that we're hosting. Um, and Faces was his film that 
it's kind of his first film that starts to get major critical attention. Um, I'm forgetting what awards it was nominated for. It might have been nominated for Best Screenplay at the Oscars. Um, and I believe uh, Seymour Cassell and Lynn Carlin were both nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Actor I think it actress. had. I was recently on the IMDb page. Yeah, I think I have three or four nominations. Yeah. I was surprised that it had as many as it did. Right, and and that doesn't really happen with him for his career, other than this film, and then later with A Woman Under the Influence, which I didn't include in this, but um, because I think Faces and Husbands are probably his two strongest films. Um, Husbands comes out in 1970. It's him uh, with um, kind of his best friends, Peter Falk and um, Ben Gazzara. And it, fo- and it follows them kind of a day in the life with them after one of their good friends ha- has passed away. Um, you see it, and it, it opens with a really uh, great uh, photo montage of uh, the four friends together um, set to a kind of jazzy version of um, When Johnny Comes Marching Home, uh, great, one of the greatest opening sequences in all of film history. But you, um, but it's, you follow Cassavetes, Falk, and Gazzara as they uh, kind of go on an all-night bender and then make a crazy trip to London and uh, leave, a lot of, uh, leave a lot of damage in their, <laughs> in their wake. But, uh, but the, the dynamic between the three of them is just is something that's just really incomparable. And I, I just I love going back to this film. And then Minnie and Moskowitz was a film, I think he made, I think the story for this is that he made it for MGM. And so it was more of a studio project. And it was it was never really that highly regarded in relation to his other films. But I really think it's one of his best. It's it's Jenna Rollins uh, stars as Minnie, Seymour Cassell as uh, uh, Seymour Moskowitz, this unlikely couple who come together. And it's just got some great interactions where they're kind of two, you know, people approaching middle age who are who are lonely and just trying to find a point of connection. Uh, one of the best scenes in the entire film is this incredibly awkward lunch that uh, Minnie has with a character named Zelmo, uh, where <coughs> Zelmo just kind of gradually unravels uh, through the lunch. Um, uh, it's 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 fantastic, uh, fantastic scene. But um, you know, recognizing kind of Cassavetes at his peak as a as a writer director, um, really setting the stage for um, a lot of the independent films that would follow. <coughs> excuse me, in the eighties and nineties, especially things that were inspired by more kind of improvisational approaches and just this kind of freewheeling um, technique that that really marks his his best work. Yeah, well, up into Mumblecore. Oh right? yeah, yeah. Um, which we're now celebrating anniversaries for. I think it's been that long. So since since that got going, Whoa. well, yeah. yeah, we're over ten years since the since some of the for first sure. films. So um, yeah, so so Cassavetes kind of struck me as you know an obvious choice when thinking about this list. So who who else do you have? Uh, well, uh, for my international mm-hmm. uh, director, uh, I, uh, I again surprising how many. We'll go and do a documentary, like a state-sponsored documentary right, in the right. middle of their work or – well, because there were wars going on in many of – That's right. The homelands where people are working on Yeah, things. Capra was somebody who – I had a streak for him, but then it's – then it's you ha, you kind of get disrupted by the Why We Fight series. Right. Um, but uh, a, a director who had a really good uh, run uh, is Abbas Karastami, mm-hmm. uh, who – you know, it doesn't make bad movies. He's one of these directors where you could... It's more a matter of what three line up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for him, it happens that my three favorite films of his come in sequence. Uh, so he makes Close Up. Great, um, great. 
with and about uh, Moshe Makhlobov mm-hmm. in 1990, yeah. uh, a film that we've screened recently. Yes. Um, about a, a court case of someone who was impersonating his fellow director, as I said, Moshe Makhlobov, mm-hmm. and uh, dramatizes and recreates that uh, courtroom experience as he is on trial for the impersonation mm-hmm. and that fraud that ensued. Uh, and after that, he hits parts two and three of the Coker trilogy or Earthquake trilogy. And that's something where uh, also we didn't talk about just how trilogies could come into the back. Like if you like right. Peter Jackson, you'd be like, oh, well, uh, Lord, Lord of the Rings. Rings. Those are three movies. Yeah. Bingo, bango, bongo. Uh, Which but, I think comes up in the tweet probably more than once, right? I'm sure. Or you can uh, stick something on either side of that that he did. like Sure. Um, but, uh, uh so, uh, life and nothing more and through the olive trees, uh, he's retelling stories, uh, from, uh, well, actually from the original film, mm-hmm. then he expands it out. Uh, there are an actor and actress who kind of fell in love. So he tells that story. Mm-hmm. And by the end he has, um, a, a sexodanium for himself in the film at kind of playing himself and directing him and, Talked about how much he hated the person playing himself. And, yeah. Uh, but it tells the, the story of this really devastating earthquake that was in Iran and then uh, pulls the story out and out and out and becomes more aware. Well, he's always highly aware of the filmic devices, but incorporates the filmic devices into it mm-hmm. uh, and kind of does the circles outside of the film each time. By the end, though, it's incredibly rewarding. And you should watch all three together. Yeah. Um, oh, but no, they definitely do. Two and three um, as films stand on their own as and well. It, and it's strange that Close Up kind of disrupted that. But it's, but, but that's, I mean, that's the film I think that many people consider his, his greatest work mm-hmm. now when they sort of compare. Although it is kind of like, you know, it's choose your favorite child, really. I mean, it's, they're all, at, at that point in his career, he's just, he's going full throttle. They're all really strong. So mm-hmm. um, I have as my second list, I, I, I Probably, I, I thought the Cassavetti's choice was safe, but this is probably an even safer set of three, which is um, I went with Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin, and his transition from uh, the silent era to the sound era. So I went with the streak of um, City Lights, Modern Times, and The Great Dictator. Chaplin really lends himself to this kind of uh, uh, you know, categorization because um, he's, this is at a point in his career where he's not making a film every single year there's there's space in between so it seems like you know the projects maybe had more time to develop certainly modern times is regarded for its you know technical innovations um but these are just i mean in, in addition to being kind of really strong in terms of reflections on the medium as as he's kind of still hanging on to the format of silent of, of you know silent presentation well after the the industry has made the transition to the silent era um He's, um, you know, he also has has a lot to say. Um, And so especially in the latter two films, Modern Times and The Great Dictator, those are films that are, you know, very pointed in their kind of critique, not only of American society, but of, you know, the the changing international uh, landscape, especially in The Great Dictator, which which uh, you watched with our film society group, right? Earlier this year. Just screen that. Yeah. Which has an incredibly. Uh, powerful uh, closing sequence. Um, Chaplin's actually, that's, I mean, one of his great strengths in all of these films is, you know, he really knows how to 
kind of hits you hits you in the feels, as they say, with his uh, his closing moments. Uh, I, I always argue that you know the the last five minutes of City Lights is one of the greatest kind of moments in all of cinema history. It just it just totally works, um, and that's the film where he's um, he's trying to help a blind woman um, regain her sight. These kind of impossible circumstances, and that's and and that's another thing about Chaplin's work, especially in this streak, is that. He does these things that uh, are kind of they're part of in, they're part of people's everyday lives, but they're the, these kind of impossible solutions that totally work. Um, they don't, even though they could be totally perceived as you know mawkish and kind of overly sentimental. Um, they're they're def- there's definitely a sentimental quality to those films, but they they somehow work as just kind of real human moments. So mm-hmm. I love them. I get I get emotional talking about them. <laughs> I'll have to collect myself before we get to the last group, but um, but those are great. So, all right. So, uh, what's your next group? Uh, so to close out, uh, I'm going with the the Charlie Chaplin of the late '80s, early '90s, oh, oh boy. Stephen Herrick. <laughs> this is this is a, a bold stake you're putting in the ground. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but Stephen Herrick, uh, I I went down the I guess the the rat hole of mm-hmm. my childhood film going experience mm-hmm. um is I that different I, from a wormhole is that it's, it's just like <laughs> scuzzier <laughs> but um I, there's a really good run of um of kids movies that are comedic that i think still have a lot of vitality in life mm-hmm. uh so he makes uh bill and ted's excellent adventure in 1989 mm-hmm. uh then he makes uh, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead perhaps the most important movie of 1991 um, <laughs> in 1991, and then catches up with The Mighty Ducks in 1992. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, obviously I, I, I'm subbing him in for Hal Ashby that I had on my list. <laughs> but I do think there's a lot of merit to this, uh, uh, to this run in that uh, the films have uh, young adults having to work with other young adults and take on leadership roles and fail in the face of adult society and then ultimately pick up the pieces and become who they want to be and embrace it and then succeed. That would be the through line of those three films, I think. Um, And to do it in high concept, um, vivid ways, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. I think they're they're going to age well. I keep waiting for... (laughs) I can't, I'm gonna. I'm gonna probably. I'm like Delta Don. I'm gonna keep waiting for this for a very long time. But I keep waiting for people to go back to uh, Bill and Ted's and re- yeah. They haven't it. really. They haven't really hit again. Um, yeah. They, you know, and there's not. There's. I mean, I would. I would assume. You know, just from kind of like film snob culture, that you know, maybe Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey would be the one people would go back to because mm-hmm. it because it has the you know it has the the film references. It has kind of the you know the very overt um, play on Bergman and mm-hmm. I forget what else. It's those movies. Have, these movies have not held up in my memory quite as strongly as yours. So well, uh, I don't really have much Bogus to say. Journey doesn't hold up because it's not a Herrick joint. So. Oh, that's right. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Um, Herrick had but the, thing. the even with the. Like the overly didactic, like you're going to learn about history mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you're going to learn about Beethoven and mm-hmm. Joan of Arc and Genghis Khan. And um, even when you're a kid, you're watching these things, you know, in first grade and you're like, I don't think Joan of Arc would have a crush on these people. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> I think you have to bring that back. Maybe you should bring that back when we show the um, when we show the Bruno Dumont film. There's, oh, there's your that, there's your double feature. Yeah, Jeanette. Yeah, you can do your whole when you do your whole Joan of Arc series. That'll be. I think that would be. Um, yeah, that's the that's a that's the Artur Joan of Arc. <laughs> no <one does. laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> so that's my so that's the other threesome. Okay. Uh, by the way, you could throw critters in and make it a make, make it, it a four. Make it a pack. four. Okay, if you're, if you're inclined. All right, so since you're going in that di- since I was I was unsure about where to go with this last group, but since you're going in that direction, I'm going to go with um I'm going to go with the the late great Colin Higgins. Okay. <laughs> because I think you're you're playing on nostalgia a little bit um in your in your selections, although you're that's making That's all I do. That's right. That's only <laughs> So I'm going to so you, now you're just I'm I'm going you're going to you're digging that out of me, which doesn't take very much. Uh so Colin Higgins um had written screenplays for um Harold and Maude and I think Silver Streak um prior to his his three run uh, streak as a director, uh, which began with the uh, emerging talents of Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn in Foul Play uh, from 1978. Mm-hmm. Follow that in 1980 with um, uh, Jane, Lily, and Dolly in Nine to Five, mm-hmm. and then you close Looking out. Looking to show that next semester. Oh, good. Um, and then we end with uh, what we a film we just showed, uh, uh, 1982's The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. So, a um, couple of things about these films. Let me get if I can indulge in. Were anecdotes. you allowed to watch those as a kid? Oh yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean those are all actually nine. Okay, so here's here's here. I'll explain. So foul play. Um, I didn't get to see it in theaters, but um, I remember w- being really ex- so. P- part of the plot of foul play involves um, a, an attempt to uh, assassinate the pope. Uh, they're going to you know they have to go to some big production where the pope is supposedly. Uh, there's there's an assassin who wants to kill him off. And this is early eighties, seventy eight, seventy eight. But it oh, but by the time I was able to see it, it was I didn't get to see it in theaters, so I was going to watch it on television, uh-huh. um, and I was looking forward to the broadcast television premiere because this is before cable, this is before VHS, so you had to wait if you didn't see it in theaters unless it got reissued to see uh, to see it when it was on TV. So I was all excited uh, to see Foul Play on TV, and then what happened? The the real Pope. There was an assassination attempt on the real pope, so they pulled it from broadcast. I was crushed. Aww. I was more sad about that than the pope almost getting killed. <laughs> um, so that was my perspective at that point. But then eventually, I got to see it, and um, and I think it, when we finally did get cable, it was in pretty regular rotation. Was it one of? Did it get? Kind of dustbin for a while. I mean, what was the embargo on it? Do you know? Oh, it just was. It, they just held off for a couple of a couple of weeks or maybe a month or so. I can't okay. remember how long it was, but like it wasn't. The Pope it wasn't must diet. No, no. That, do you, do you that remember that dust up? Yes. I don't. <laughs> I remember the title and never having any interest in going further with it. But um, foul play, I, I saw probably more when it when we finally when I finally did get cable television and it was in fairly regular rotation. But you know, it's it's a comedy. It's uh, it's got a kind of thriller storyline to it. It's romantic because you get Chevy and Goldie. Um, it's in San Francisco, so everything seems really cool. Um, so there's just a lot of good, a lot of good assets to it. Nine to five, we're gonna. You, you said we're gonna possibly show this next semester. Correct. Um, you know, just a great and of course now timely well, <laughs> look at kind of the workplace. Timely. That's why I think anyone who watches it is yeah. like, oh yeah, this is so right. Whether it's the early '80s, the mid '90s, or today, it's just like, yep, things haven't really gotten well. better. Well, they things aren't where they need to be in terms of workplace equality. So, yep. 
so and I think and, and actually linking this to um, Best Little Whorehouse, uh, which you know again we just watched. Best Little Whorehouse has it has a lot of flaws to it, but um, I think the music in it and just particularly the use of Dolly Parton in that film is kind of gives makes up for any you know flaws within mm-hmm. it um, because she just she looks great, she sounds great, she's totally endearing, and I think this was one of Colin Higgins' greatest strengths is that he took Dolly Parton, who is this on the surface a very kind of unnatural film presence like she's really designed to be on the stage at the Grand Old Opry or on you know on the Merv Griffin show with with glittery lights behind her so when you try to put her in you know an office setting in 9 to 5 or in a whorehouse <laughs> there's, there's something just sort of strange about her but he makes but he makes it work he makes her he makes that sort of unreal presence of her just completely warm and endearing and just mm-hmm. it just works really incredibly well and that's i don't think that's something i well, picked up on as a Dolly's kid well that's also skill is you know having, having something that is very you know well perhaps literally plastic yeah but having so much heart right and acknowledgement of it right. that Kind of it, it makes everything dissolve. And- the story, when she and Burt Reynolds are talking about she how she wanted to be a ballerina, and he says, "Well, you should do it. You should go jump up and down and be a ballerina." And she's like, "I'd have two black eyes if I did that." <laughs> I mean, she's very self aware, and she's you know really sweet. So, um, and I think Colin Higgins was as a director kind of picked up on that. Um, I don't think he was taken very seriously as a director, and sadly, his career didn't continue. Um, he um, died of AIDS in the mid '80s, um, so his his career was actually fairly short lived. But um, but he certainly, I mean, for a certain kind of kind of Hollywood film, late '70s, early '80s, he you know he had he had a thing going in terms of um, I think he knew what people wanted to see, um, but he also um, was fairly he didn't it, they don't feel like sellouts. They feel like they're kind of true to the material, and um, and I think I think all three of those films. Uh, hold up well if you go back to them so that's what we have there's there's nine plus uh (laughs) with all of our digressions so (laughs) hopefully that gives people some things to look for and um in the world of streaming uh titles and and we'll be back in 2018 where we'll do a recap of 2017 great as well as forecast of what people can expect throughout the semester And in the interim, I hope people have really good holidays. Happy holidays. And uh, we'll see you back soon.